This week in Arsenal, the PGMOL defeat the Gunners at St. James's Park by a score of 1-0. Mikel Arteta goes on the warpath. Arsenal inch closer to knockout round qualification in the Champions League. And the supporting cast makes their cases. Let's get into it. Maybe we'll have a good surprise for you. Welcome in to This Week in Arsenal, episode 34. It is Thursday, November 9th, 2023. And uh, as always, I'm here. I'm Sham. You can follow me on Twitter slash X at Shamsdale. Uh, with me, as always, is Sash, who you can follow uh, at LT Arsenal. Sash, how are you doing, my friend? Yeah, pretty good, um, especially after yesterday evening. A lot better. Champions League win on a Wednesday night. Weekend coming up. In a couple of days, yeah, all in all, feeling quite good. How about yourself? Yeah, I've I've managed to calm down since uh, since the Newcastle game, and um, luckily we had the Sevilla match to cheer us up. So so that was good. But um, yeah, looking forward to getting into that. And um, with us to get into that is the illustrious Chitty making his return, second appearance. Who you can follow at Chitty AFC. How are you doing, good sir? I'm doing great, man. Um, yeah, one more day to the weekend, so yeah, I'm just ecstatic. And the severe game, as you said, I feel like it's so important. We have the Champions League games to sort of help us get over the Premier League uh, games if they go wrong. So yeah, I'm feeling a lot better about the club right now. Yeah, yeah, so close, and uh, I think we're about to hit a um, an easier run, I guess, of fixtures, starting with Burnley at home on Saturday. Which um, which we're all looking forward to, but yeah, why don't why don't we um, kick it out uh, or you know kick it off and get it out of the way and just kind of dive into the the significant moment of the Newcastle match was which was that goal that um, just incredibly was allowed somehow. So you know just as a quick refresher because it's been a few days, right? Um, Newcastle they they attack and the ball goes out for a goal kick. Um, I forget who goes to keep it in play. I I feel like it was Almiron. I could be wrong about that. But the important thing is the ball appeared to roll out. Joe it was Willett? kept in play. Yeah. Sorry? It was Joe Willick. Oh, wh- oh, it was yeah, it was Willick. Uh that that's that's a dagger. Uh so Willick keeps in play, plays in a cross, and then Jolinton essentially does a two-handed shove on Gabrielle. And then wins the header. Looks like he handles it as well. And heads it across the goal to Anthony Gordon. And then Anthony Gordon taps it in after David Raya essentially flaps at it and goes missing. So, um, you know, I just want to get both of your thoughts on whether that goal should have stood, what was wrong with it, uh, how many of the calls in that sequence the referees missed. So, uh, Chitty, we'll start with you. Yeah, it was just a bit of a disastrous bit of refereeing all around. Like, 
Um, okay, the ball out of play, first of all. Uh, to be honest, I thought it was it was inconclusive for me, to be honest. I don't think... I think there's a problem with the way that it's just done in general in terms of... If we have the goal line technology, why do we not have the technology to see whether a ball is over the line when it's not a goal? Like, why can't that same technology just be applied across the whole the whole goal line? I don't see why how much of a difference it makes if it like if they do it like i'm not sure why that's not a thing already so things like this should be easily preventable but okay that's not in place the camera angles okay it's, it's just it's a very like dubious one i would i it looked out it looked out to me and i don't know if i'm being biased in a sense or like <laughs> it's because i'm an arsenal fan but like i just feel like the angles we've seen it looks more out than in so I would have said it was out. And we've seen goals, as you saw, like the United one that got disallowed, that was out of play. And it was a very similar situation. So I would have thought they would have gone with out of play. But OK, that one was a bit more 50-50. For me, the one was the, the, the push. I, I thought that's a, that's a definite foul. Like, and like when I saw the replay, first replay, I was like, that's a foul. They have to disallow it. Because it's like they're very, like usually they're quite sensitive to when, when you're like, going for a goal and you make a foul like that they literally just disallow it straight away there's it's quite a high sort of or low threshold in the sense of like you can't re make a play like that when you're going for a goal like if it was maybe i don't know um five seconds ten seconds uh, earlier in the replay they might have like brushed it off but i feel like they're very quite sensitive to those sort of fouls where it's just just before the goal and he literally you could see he had two hands on him he clearly pushes him and like it's just clearly it's just clearly a foul like it's not really much to say apart from it. it's just a foul and if, yeah. if it like i just feel like there's just no there's just no consistency in that sort of thing because you saw i mean i know they say arsenal fans always go back in the past and like we have like all the receipts from years and years ago but i mean you have to we we remember these decisions because it has affected us down the years yeah. like the, the, the tottenham one obviously the the one for the penalty where they judged holding to a fouled son, fouled son in like the very similar sort of way, and yeah. if that one's not a foul, if that one's a foul, then how is this one not a foul? Like this one was probably even a bigger push than the one that holding did. So honestly, I don't know what, I don't know what they were thinking. And then what was even the other thing that happened? The there was a handball in there as well, and then there was the offside. The yes, the offside. Yeah. The offside. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I thought it. I thought it was offside. To be honest, I think that was also a bit more dubious because it wasn't sure. Um, yeah, the the I think the angles you saw weren't the greatest for that one as well, which is why I sort of stick with the foul as the main one that I was really annoyed about. But it's just the fact that you have three or four separate things you could disallow a goal for, and you don't disallow a goal. It's just like it's like you're 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 just trying to get the goal pass through. You're you're, you're trying to. They were trying to piss us off as well because they knew, oh yeah, you know, Arsenal fans, you always have a bit of a, a bit of a thing with the referees, and it's like, okay, let's give them a bit of hope. Like, oh, we'll check the, we'll check the off, out of play, we'll check the offside, we'll check the foul, we're gonna like allow everything. Let's give it a goal. So it's even worse in the sense that they checked everything and they still thought it wasn't a goal. It was a goal in a sense. So I think they're a toy of us in a sense. I'm not saying it's conspiracy, but you know. Yeah, that was that was kind of the worst thing about it, right? Which was there were four different things that they were reviewing, and you just kind of, you know, I, I think at that point most people were just like, well, there has to be something in there, right? It's four 
it's four different things, right? The, the ball going out of play and the shove and the handball and the offsides. One of those things has to stick. And for the, and the fact that they reviewed three of those things and decided there was nothing there, even though, you know, the, the shove I think is most obvious because Joel Linton literally extends both his arms onto the back of Gabriel's head. And, you know, most coaches yeah. will tell you that they coach people just to do the one arm because the two always will get them in trouble. Um, so, you know, that was the most obvious thing. But I think the handball, I think, you know, there's something in that. I think Anthony Gordon could be a judge, or could be judged to uh, be offside. Um, yeah, and the fact that they just let those three things go and then said that they didn't have the angle for the offside, I think is is ridiculous. And um, yeah, I think that was kind of the biggest killer. But yeah, Sash, I mean, how how are you feeling about that? Did you did you see anything different? Well, I think I agree with Arteta's assessment post the game. He's used the word disgraceful. He said that he's ashamed uh, to like be a coach in England after all these years. Um, and I totally agree with him. Embarrassing decision. I've never seen this sham where in four situations you could have disallowed a goal, but still they choose to give it four different situations in one play. And we are the same club who's had a player sent off for two fouls in one play. You know, these sort of things only happen to us. There are certain incidents in football that I think are reserved for Arsenal, especially when it comes to some of these refereeing decisions. Like, for example, one of our players being sent off uh, less than 0.4 seconds after he took a shot uh, in the Champions League against Barcelona those years ago. There are certain things that only happen to us. And I thought this weekend was an absolute like epitome of that. And honestly, Mikel Arteta, he's been quiet all these days. He's been really nice. He's just been saying, no, we have to focus on ourselves, do better. But finally, he snapped. And I think his press conference uh, at the end of the game was really powerful. The way he came out and stood uh, for the team, you know. And the PGMOL, by the way, today they've come out and justified that decision, which is crazy, with absolutely no explanations whatsoever, okay? And here's the thing. Based on the replay that was shown when the ball went outside, what was your first thought? It looked out, didn't it? Like, for me, it looked like the ball was clearly out of play. And now there are people saying, no, the ball has a different shape. When you freeze the frame, you can't see the hall of the ball. So you can't... Okay, fine. I'm not an expert in geometry. But at least show me an angle where the ball is in play. And they didn't do that. They're saying, we don't have the technology. And then they're saying, we don't have the technology to draw lines when the play is congested. Then they're saying, no, it's not a foul. Then they're saying, no, it's not a handball. When four decisions go against you in one play, you know, then you start to doubt the system. And I don't know what it is, okay? I don't want to get too much into conspiracy theories. But I read somewhere that the referees in charge of the VAR, they actually refereed in Saudi Arabia uh, some Mm -hmm. months ago. Uh, And as you know, Newcastle is, you know, owned more or less by Saudi Arabia. So... What happens there? Like, like, why do you draw the line here? Like, it's hard when decisions like this go against you. And also, last week we saw what happened uh, when Wolves played against Newcastle. They absolutely got robbed. I don't know. Like, I'm not saying anything, but I'm just saying, right? Like, these conspiracy theories are not going to go away if you continue to make decisions like this. So, I was absolutely fuming. And look, 
I understand totally that the performance from us could have been better going forward. But I also just want to say one more thing, Sham. How many teams go to Newcastle and win 3-0, 4-0? There's only three sides that beat Newcastle away from home uh, in the Premier League in the last uh, year. Actually, two teams, Liverpool and Arsenal. Liverpool nicked one this season in the last kick of the game virtually. Arsenal won 2-0 last season, but we relied a lot on Ramsdale to save us that day. And earlier in earlier last season, Liverpool won by a goal. But these are the only two teams that have gone there and won, right? So you're, this is not a ground you're going to go to and blow them. And you've seen how they play. They have so many thugs who just come and bully you. Look at the way Bruno Gumarais is playing, like literally playing rugby with our midfield. You have, you're playing against a team like this that's just stacked in the middle of the park. You're not going to beat them 3-0. This is the sort of game you want to stay and nick it at the end. And Arsenal, I feel we were in the process of doing that. Now, I know there were moments in the final third we could have done better. But honestly, this is a game where we were robbed, Sham. And we should, yeah. even if you're saying we didn't deserve to win, we didn't deserve to lose. And that's why it's a very bitter pill to swallow because we should be the only unbeaten side in the Premier League. And we're not. Uh, because of the PGMOL. And I think in some ways it's good for the invincibles because if you see the decisions that the referees are making these days, teams are inevitably going to be on the end of decisions like this. So no team is going to go unbeaten. So I guess that's some silver lining here. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the the Bruno thing, I think, pisses me off more than anything else because I think there are two or three separate incidents in which he very much earned a red card. And it's just, um, I don't know, I'm just I'm sick and tired of seeing games like that where someone commits these super easy red card challenges and then gets away with it. Um, I've, I, I don't, I feel like I, I will watch other teams play and if someone gets an elbow to the base of their skull, that guy's out, right? I feel like if someone gets shoved over off the ball and then yelled at immediately to get up, the ref is going to stop the play and kick that guy off the pitch. It never happens for us, though. Um, in, in terms of kind of like a, a general big picture about the PGMOL, um, I'm, you know, I, I, I don't want to engage in the conspiracy theories, but I will say this. And, you know, I this is kind of something I have background in in terms of what I in terms of my day job. The PGMOL have gone out of their way to really make it look like they are not impartial, right? These these guys are refereeing in the UAE and Saudi Arabia, two states that essentially own, you know, clubs in the Premier League. One of them has been winning all the trophies recently. And then they, you know, there was a there was an article released today, I think, by Dale Johnson at ESPN talking about how an independent panel has reviewed this goal and stated that, um, you know, Havertz and Bruno should have been red cards and that the Newcastle goal should have stood. That independent panel is made up of a PGMOL ref, a Premier League representative, three former players, and Martin Atkinson and John Moss were involved in that process, by the way, of creating this panel. So you have two you have two former referees from the PGMOL who both were not great at their job. And then you have another referee from the PGMOL who, of course, you know, we've seen now, they have a long history of not wanting to make their mates look bad on TV in front of the world, right? Mm -hmm. So you have one guy, actually you have three. You have three people 
who are not going to overturn that decision. And then you have a, uh, a rep from the Premier League. Do you think the Premier League wants to come out in front of the entire world and admit that the people officiating their games made a massive mistake? No, they they want to be viewed as the best league in the world. And the best league in the world has the has referees are the most correct the, the most often, right? And then, mm. you know, former players, I'm sorry, but when you say former players in these positions of power, I think Manchester United players, I think Spurs players, I think Liverpool players. Do you think those guys want to admit that Arsenal got hard done by the referees? Do you think they want to admit that they should have won or drawn a game that they lost? Absolutely not. So, you know, for I think it's a joke to refer to that panel as independent. Um, mm. The Premier League needs to have an independent regulator for the PGMOL, but it shouldn't be a bunch of guys who were involved in the PGMOL and a bunch of people who definitely are without bias, or sorry, definitely without uh, with their bias. The why PGMOL they have got, needs to. Yeah, sorry? why couldn't they? So why couldn't they have got like I don't know. I guess it might be a bit more hassle, but it could have got people from abroad to do it. Surely, like I don't know. Yeah, a bunch of referees from spain or from italy or whatnot uh, completely people who haven't got any sort of interest in the english game but will just look at it as a purely refereeing thing and see what happened and then we can have a fair reflection because obviously yeah as you said people who have an interest or a former interest in the game in the certain teams in the league like they can't give like it's physically impossible for them to give a truly unbiased opinion like it's just that's just a fact yeah and you know, former players who are in the media, who are in these positions in the game, I, I just feel like so many of them function more as ambassadors for their team, as lobbyists for their team. And every once in a while, they'll say something objective just to keep up appearances. Um, Gary Neville, Jamie Carragher, I'm looking at you. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I don't I don't if someone wants to wave that around and say that the Newcastle goal was legit. I'm not buying it because I just think there are too many holes to poke in this argument that it was independent. Yeah, absolutely. And regarding the point Shidi made, like we are an international league, okay? We have international players, international managers, international fans, international owners. But no, all the referees should only be within a five-kilometer radius of Greater Manchester, right? So this is something that I will never understand. It's farcical, honestly. (laughs) How dare you, Sash? There's one guy from Australia... Oh yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> One exception to the rule. Representation. <laughs> yeah, and it's quite hilarious to see which clubs get the decisions going their way. United historically, and also Manchester City. And on the point you made as well on Carragher and Neville. First of all, Jamie Carragher, like he's a guy who spatted someone. Who the hell is he to tell us that forearm is no harm? Like honestly, like. Come on. Like, I, I'm fed up with him because you saw his analysis on CBS Sport. It's so different. He criticizes officials. And when he works for Sky, he doesn't do it. It's quite clear to me the PGMOL uh, provides exclusive clips to Sky and all exclusive information. So you see on Sky that a decision is always given to us before it's actually announced. So they have all of these access so as to speak. And in return, they're just supporting the referees. And I'm noticing this from Gary Neville, from Jamie Carragher, and from different people in the media. They're all hand in glove, okay? And they're all trying to take down Arteta because he has actually a really good point. 
And Arteta mentioned it. He wants to improve the system of officiating. This is something that even Klopp has echoed. And what I don't get as well is rival fans. Like, I'm so happy what happened to United yesterday. You know, the, their fans deserve it. Because they marked us on Saturday after we had a goal disallowed. After we had a after we had a goal given against us wrongly. And you saw what happened to them yesterday. So they deserve it. And I think each team has to get a taste of this medicine before they finally wake up and see what's the writing on the wall. I think I think with yeah. that as well, it's like there's a lot of like tribalism. Like people are very sort of like, oh, when it's against a team that they don't like, they laugh at them. They're like, oh, you should hold that, hold that, whatever. But then it comes around to you. And then you're then you're just like, oh, the ref's not on our side. The referee is so bad. But then you saw it happen to us and you didn't care at that point. And now it's happened to you. Now you're all acting like, oh, yeah, things need to change. Things need to change. But we've been saying it for how long? And it's not an Arsenal thing that we will. We just want it better for Arsenal. We want it better across the board so that we can go and watch a game and be happy with the out, not be happy with the outcome, but be satisfied that the outcome hasn't been affected by external influences that ha- that shouldn't affect it. You know what I'm saying? So we want it better for everyone. And that's what Arteta wanted. And you saw what happened in terms of like the managers starting to like rally around him and be like, yeah, we agree with what he's saying. And it's like, okay, they, they, they do that. But then like, Finals haven't realised this. this is because Arteta has actually stood up for the club and f- stood up for himself for once. And yeah. now things are in motion. People actually are like agreeing. But it's like pe- he- people were calling him a crybaby and a whinger and all these sort of things when he's actually just demanding better for the whole league. Yeah, yeah. And it's also hypocrisy by the media, you know. When Arteta shows like passion, like he showed after Newcastle, they say that, He's like toxic. He's complaining. But when Klopp runs into the pitch, which no manager is supposed to during the game, he's called passionate, you know. So again, it's all about perception. And Micah Richards said this, like when people speak about Arsenal, everyone seems to get wound up. Like, why does everyone have something negative to say about us? So that's what I think. It's Arsenal Football Club versus the world. And... Yeah, I hope that this can propel the players on to a really good season. Yeah, absolutely. Also, if there's any background noise coming from my end, apologies. There's um, a fan going in the kitchen right now. But um, yeah, I, you know, before we 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 move on to the Sevilla game, I think that is something that we should talk about, which is how we move forward with with making the Premier League's officiating better, right? And I think. You guys touched on something really important there, which is a a lack of intersectionality with with the teams. You know, it's it's every man for himself whenever we talk about refereeing decisions, and it's everyone always wanting to rag on the other. But I think the next step here is for you know maybe Arsenal has to be the team that does this, but for one team to go around to the others and say, "Hey, Liverpool. Hey, Wolves. Um, you know, hey, Chelsea. I know you guys have." been really screwed over by refereeing decisions so far this year um you know we we need to kind of band together and and really start applying pressure to the premier league right and to the pgmol because the money makers in in the english league are not the referees the money makers are you know the the amazing managers some of the most of the best managers in the world are in the Premier League right now, right? And a lot of the best players in the world are in the Premier League right now. Those are the people who bring in the money that fund this whole operation. So I think when you have those big names 
those famous faces, you know, really taking the PGMOL to task and saying, this isn't good enough. This isn't the league that I signed up to play or manage in. I think, um, I think they'll start, you know, really causing change and, and forcing, you know, the powers that be to really take a look at how things are, are being run and, um, you know, actually considering some serious change, but, you know, do you guys think there, do you guys think that's the way forward? Do you guys think that there's, you know, other solutions or other ways to, to improve the situation? Um, so yeah, I agree with what you've said, but I think we basically touched on the point. So independent regulator is really important. Um, I also think, yeah, you need to select the best person for the job and not based on where they come from, get the best people. Like in the world cup, uh, last year, like for the most part, I didn't think that the officiating was bad. I thought it went quite smoothly, even in the champions league for the large part, it has been okay. So it's only in the Premier League where every weekend the talking point becomes about the referees. I think some of the solutions the pundits suggest, like remove VAR, that's absolutely not the solution. VAR is, I think, absolutely ne necessary in the game. You need the right people behind it. So the most important thing is to get the best people in the job. But I will say this, the referees at the end of the day, they are following orders. They work for someone, right? And as you mentioned, Sham, you need an independent regulator who can actually go to the top of that organization and uh, bring about change. Because, look, beyond the point, I feel bad even criticizing individual referees. These are human beings trying to make a livelihood for themselves, for their families. Um, but I think the system that is about them is what needs to change. And until that changes, nothing will ever change. So... I hope that we can bring about a positive solution. Arteta did say that they have manager meetings where clubs sit down together and raise some of these issues. You're seeing Klopp a bit proactive with this. You're seeing Arteta as well. You're seeing clubs starting to put out statements which is being slammed by basically those that are hand in glove with the PGMOL. But I think that absolutely must continue. Put the pressure on these guys. Uh, these guys are not saints. You need to really put the pressure on them to actually bring about that change. And I think to some extent, things might be improving, at least for a change. They are apologizing to teams and managers. I know that doesn't help beyond the point uh, because that doesn't give you points. But at least that is some start because before that was not even the case. So I hope they can work together and actually bring about some change because this is the best league in the world with some of the worst officiating in the world. And we've been saying this for years and years and years. And it's actually frustrating as well as a football fan because we want to watch football. We want the talking points to be about uh, should the striker continue playing? Did the manager make the right decision? But no, every weekend becomes a discourse about the officials. So honestly, the lesser we talk about officials, the better they're doing. They are not the heroes in the sport. The heroes are the players. So please, to all the officials, stop trying to be the hero. And just let the game go, please. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Chitty, any thoughts? Yeah, yeah, no, I definitely agree. And like, I think there is just kind of a lack of like accountability among refereeing in general. In terms of, I mean, you saw Anthony Taylor; he had he was the one who did the the Wolves penalty, the Newcastle penalty that was just complete, yeah. complete nonsense. And obviously, he got dropped for one game into the championship. I don't know if you saw that he made an yeah. <laughs> interesting decision in the championship as well. Um, given a penalty for basically nothing, 
And it's like, okay, so this guy has gone to the, been relegated to the championship, stunk it up in the championship. What do they do? They give him the Chelsea Man City game. Like, how is that going to encourage better refereeing in general, you know? Like, when they're just literally, it's like they have a, like, have a week off and you can come back and referee at the highest level again. And, and there's just no, I feel like there should be some sort of way you can, I don't want to like advocate people getting fired, but I feel like that should be on the cards at a certain point because especially when you're making mistakes that are so bad that the referees have to come out, um, PJML has to make an apology for a refereeing decision. Like I feel like that should be put you close to sack, like close to sack in the fence or, you know, I don't know, a three strike system or something like that where you can actually just get sacked from your position because you, you, you can't, like, you know how much money people are losing? Like, say, like, um, when, uh, was it the Aston Villa a few years ago when it was, like, the goal line technology thing where they didn't they didn't get relegated because goal line technology didn't work at a certain point? I can't remember what a game it was, but... Against Sheffield, they, I think. Yeah, I think it was, yeah, against Sheffield United. And, they, yeah, they, then it, that basically saved Aston Villa that season. And mm-hmm. then, um, obviously... They had Grealish and they sold him for a hundred million, and then they they sort of spiraled now into which club they are right now. Where meanwhile, Sheffield United they got relegated. Okay, they're back now, but you see how it changed the trajectory. That mistake, which I guess that was a more of a that was a technology thing that didn't work that day. But you know how you see how refereeing mistakes or officiating mistakes can be so like vital in terms of players losing jobs, like staff members losing jobs, losing money, etc. And there's so much money at stake that referees can't just get away with making this mistake like that and then just having a week off and coming back so i feel like the first stage is the sort of accountability i know people have talked about like referees giving post-match interviews or even micing up the referees which would be an interesting one like they do in uh, in rugby and stuff like that when you can hear the actual referees and the var j- during the game um i think that would add some clarity but i doubt they would ever do that um like I think they have their own agendas to sort of preserve whatever, but stuff like that I think is a big step in that direction. Um, yeah. And also the what's it called, the automated offsides and things like that, which they voted against for some reason. Mm-hmm. That stuff like that, like which would just pretty much end debate about offside decisions in terms of at least the the big the the ones that are quite tight in that sense. Yeah. Yes, you'll still have some uncertain to touch the ball or what that sort of stuff but at least in terms of getting the line I think we lost Chidi (laughs) (laughs) I think the PGML are watching this and they cut out his internet connection (laughs) we're next (laughs) Chidi you there I think uh... he's not there yeah, I think we'll 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 move on and uh, wait wait for him to get back. Um, but yeah, I I feel like if you get sent to the championship as a punishment, to oh there he is, he's back. <laughs> Wi-Fi. Problem. I was just yeah. saying the PGMO will hack your Wi-Fi and cut out your. Yeah, they're, they're, exactly. That's they're censoring me clearly because uh, I'm speaking the truth. But I basically yeah, I basically finished what I was saying. Like the technology that they could have had in the league they rejected and it's like do you want things to get better or not is what i'm trying to say um yeah. so yeah yeah, yeah no and it, you know it, it it 
it it decides livelihoods and and money. It also decides titles. I mean, you can make the argument that if a couple decisions had gone in our favor last season, such as the the Brentford goal, um, you know, we we'd have another Premier League trophy to our names right now. Um, yeah, I feel like if you get relegated to the championship, to, like as as punishment for a bad refereeing job, and you stink it up in the championship, you need to referee a League One game before you're allowed to come back. Yeah, um, and also yeah. if I might add, last season as well, there's a good chance Tuchel is still Chelsea's coach because last season against Spurs at home, Chelsea actually played a really good match against them. It's the 90th mm-hmm. minute. It's two one. Um, I forget who it it is. Romero, I think. Yeah, it's Romero who pulls Cucurella's hair, I think. And he should have got the second yellow and got sent off. And as Louis Van Hal said, this is something only in sex masochism. It's not supposed oh, yeah. to happen in football. <laughs> uh, but it happened in football. Uh, and Mike Dean, who was the VAR at the time, we were all wondering how the hell that was not a sending off. He comes and does a podcast with Simon Jordan uh, a few months ago. And he says that he wanted to protect his mayor because they have that understanding between them. Stuff like that doesn't help either, right? When everyone is just in it with each other, I tap, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. That's the mentality which should stop. And if Chelsea won that match, which I think they deserve to uh, on the balance of play and, and just in terms of the officiating that game, they deserve to win that match. Things could have been different. The momentum could have been different. And there's a good chance Tukiel might still be in, like having the Chelsea job. But obviously, that match changed the course of Chelsea's season. And it goes downhill from that. And yeah, with Arsenal, there are countless examples. But yeah, just to add to your point about the implications of one bad decision. Yeah. 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 And, um, you know, we could, we could spend all day talking about this, um, which is yeah. the sad thing. But... Um, we had a Champions League match yesterday that we played, and uh, we should probably get on to that. And yeah, you know, I think, you you know, after after losing at West Ham in the Carabao Cup, or sorry, the EFL Cup, and after losing at Newcastle in the Premier League under those circumstances, I think we really needed a bounce back game. As Declan Rice said, after Sevilla, you know, this is Arsenal. You can't lose three matches in a row. And so we hosted Sevilla, and they had some injury issues clearly based on their lineup, but we managed to make pretty easy work of them being them two nil. One of the performances I was really impressed by was that of Leandro Trossard. And I just want to get you guys' thoughts on how he played at center forward and whether he's done enough, I think, to take over for Eddie and Kedia, you know, as long as Gabriel Jesus is out. So uh, Sash, we'll start with you. How how did you rate Trussard's performance? And, you know, moving forward, who do you want to see at that center forward position? Look, in the long term, I want Arsenal to buy a center forward. I said this some weeks ago and I got some 700 quote tweets of people abusing me when I said that we will move on from Gabriel Jesus and Zinchenko in the next 12 months from the starting 11 as like regular starters. I believe that. I firmly believe that. And I think in the longer term, Arsenal need to buy a centre-forward. But for now, if you ask me, I think Gabriel Jesus is the first choice. But if he's not there, you want to keep the dynamics the same. People are abusing Saka and Martinelli for many weeks now. And I've always felt that when Eddie is the centre-forward, both of them don't, for some reason, play at the same level. 
I think personally, this is to do with the fact that Eddie isn't as good in terms of holding up the ball and bringing others into the game as Trossard is. And let's also not forget this. I know a lot of people say that Eddie had a good role to play last season. I agree with that. But Arsenal in February of last year, we got three games without a win, right? We lose away at Goodison Park. We draw at home to Brentford. Again, a bad officiating decision, but we didn't play well that day, so far enough. And then we lose against Manchester City. What does Arteta change after that? He brings Leandro Trassard and puts him down the middle. And then Arsenal go on a seven-game winning run, which is the highest ever winning streak we've had under Arteta, playing scintillating football. Now, I know you have to take the opposition as well into consideration, but those seven games, Saka and Martinelli were amazing. Martinelli, I think, had a goal contribution in every single one of those games. Trossard was getting assists for fun. And Saka was also balling out. Now, after that, in April, Gabriel Jesus comes back. Of course, we collapse in the title. And I'm not putting that on just Gabriel Jesus. But my point I'm trying to make is that when Trossard came in, we went on an incredible run. The only half of football where we've been bad when Leandro Trossard was center forward was this season against Fulham at home. And I believe that there are other factors for why we were bad. And I think that's the midfield. Because even once Trossard was taken out, it's not like we improved in the second half. It's only when we substituted Fabio Vieira in after like 70 minutes that the dynamics shifted a bit. So I think Trossard should be playing down the middle. No doubt in my mind. The technical security he offers is phenomenal. He might not be physically imposing or he might not have that blistering pace in behind. But he's a really intelligent footballer. And you can see somehow when he's playing, Martinelli is just amazing. And I would say keep Trussard 100%. And I also want to say that compared to Eddie, Trussard is a better finisher in my opinion. And I know this might be controversial because people will say, oh, Eddie, from the age of six, he's been playing as like the striker. <laughs> but I think some of that goes out of the window. Like, let's just look at who is good at this moment. And I think Trossard, ruthless player, he gets the chance, he buries it. And yesterday he showed as well um, why he's been such a fantastic player for us. This guy has a hat-trick at Anfield playing at centre-forward. You have to be quite good to do that. And yeah. as good as Eddie has been at times, I don't see him in that level yet. So it's a no-brainer for me that Trossard should continue. Chidi, what do you think? Yeah, I think I, I talked about Eddie last uh last time i was on here but um i think it's um i think it's just it's just clear that like people are at like oh it's just a coincidence or whatnot it's not a coincidence but the fact the, the way that eddie plays and his play style like it's not like he plays badly all the time but it just doesn't mesh with not just saka and martinelli but just like everyone almost really i don't think I don't really think he makes anyone really better in terms of the way he plays. And like maybe it's a bit harsh, but I just feel like the goals he gets are just sort of like he he, he scores some goals sometimes and it's like it doesn't come from, you know, him being involved in great play and getting on the end of it or whatnot. Like even like the hat trick he scored against Sheffield United, hat trick, amazing. Okay, I can't can't fault that. But you know, okay, the first goal, yeah, it was a it was a good pass from it is Buckham done. 
<laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly yeah so i mean it was a good goal good like good finishes like the second goal was a scrappy one from a corner the third goal was just sort of him collecting it and shooting and like it's a great hat trick but you know the sort of goals that like say the goal that trossard scored yesterday with saka link um linking up yeah. getting on nice play like you don't see eddie on the end of those sort of on those those sort of goals and or involving those sort of types of play that the sort of play that we want to play with Saka and Martinelli in terms of quick link and play, pass and move, that sort of thing. I just don't think Eddie's just good at facilitating that sort of play. And like, I even like looked at stats literally because um, transfer market do this thing where you can see sort of joint goal participation between certain players when they're on the pitch. And Trossard and Saka have linked up for seven goals already in their yeah. Arsenal careers. And think about Eddie, who's played 116 games for Arsenal with Saka. So that's four times as many games. Yes, fair enough. He's not played every... He's not started a lot of those games, but they've only linked for five goals in that period. So you think about Trossard and Saka in, what, a year? Less than a year, because Trossard came in January. They've already linked for seven more goals than Eddie and Saka have ever linked for. And I'm sure it's the same for Martinelli as well. And it's like that sort of evidence in that sense. I think it's just very clear that Saka prefers playing with Trossard or that sort of centre-forward. And I think if you think about it, Saka and Martinelli, they hold they hold the keys to this team in terms of they're gonna take us wherever they take us is where we're going. It's like we 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 rely on them to to be the main output guys in our team. And Mm -hmm. I feel like we have to be facilitating them as much as possible, which also sort of goes into like the sort of striker we should be looking for in terms of someone who can bring out the best of Saka and Martinelli. And I feel like Martinelli especially, we do not do enough for him in terms of giving him the best condition to thrive. I feel like we, especially with the whole centre-mid situation, the left centre-mid, we, we could go hours for again in terms of this situation. But we don't have someone who links with Martinelli at all. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, Declan Rice, when he plays that position, yes, he, he, he does his best and everything, but he's not a natural at eight. He's not a natural guy who's going to, you know, play him and go on the overlap or do what that do whatever. And he's trying, and I think he's learning quickly. But yeah. you would rather have him in his best position at six, and have someone else there who's going to actually be there and yeah. give Martinelli the underlap, the overlap, the link play, the sort of things that he needs to actually link with someone like Odegaard and Saka do on the on the right hand side. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we've actually do him a disservice in just keeping him isolated on the left wing. Just be just like sort of giving the ball, be like, yo, go do what you go do whatever. He doesn't have an overlap from the left back because we the left back inverts. He doesn't have a uh, Lincoln centre mid because the left centre mid is just a ghost at the moment. So it's just like he just hasn't really got much to play with. And I feel like when we're playing, this the whole team needs to facilitate Martinelli and Saka to do their best football and let them get the goals, get the assist for our team. Um, so I think everything should be built towards that, and which is why Trossard should be over Eddie for sure yeah I think that's a really interesting stat with um the number of goal combinations for you know for Saka and Enkedia and then Saka and Trossard and it's probably even worse with Martinelli because I remember that there was a there was a stretch of several games last season when Enkedia was starting for the injured Jesus and I think I think it was over the course of it was like seven seven or nine games something like that and Kedia passed the ball to Martinelli one time, right? 
And, you know, so those two don't link up at all. And that's kind of always been my problem with Enkedia. A lot of people will, you know, try to hit you with the the scapegoating label. A lot of people will ask, why do you hate Eddie? I don't, I don't hate Enkedia. I think he's, you know, a really solid center forward, but he just, it's not the right profile. And Enkedia's whole game is getting onto the end of moves and scoring goals for himself. Right. But the thing is, the way that we play, we've always needed a center forward who facilitates, who supports the people around him. That's why Jesus unlocked us last season because he showed up and then all of a sudden Martinelli's playing some of the best football of his career. Sacco is getting central. Um, you know, even Odegaard and Jacko were being brought into the game. Um, and Trussard, at least, is able to replicate that to an extent. Right. So you have a guy who, will drop deep and he'll pick up the ball and he won't lose it and he'll create something. Um, you have a guy who'll drift off to the wings and even swap places with them and allow Martinelli, allow Saka to come centrally. Um, the way I think about it is if Jesus gets the ball 30 yards from goal, are you worried? Probably yes, right? If Trossard gets the ball 30 yards from goal, are you worried? Do you want a defender to drop in and kind of put him under pressure? Yes, you do. If Nketiah gets the ball 30 yards from goal, what is he going to do with it, right? Is he going to turn and and play a pass that's going to cut through the defense? No. Is he going to turn and whip a, you know, a, a worldy into the top corner? Not really, unless it's against Sheffield United, apparently. Um, mm-hmm. So he's not, he's, he's not a guy who creates problems, right? He's not a guy who's going to get the ball and turn and run at defenders either. Um so he just has a very limited skill set. What he can do well, he can do really well, right? He's a good goal scorer. I, I think there's more consistent scorers out there, but he's pretty solid at it. So I think my whole thing about the Enkedia Trussard situation is that Trussard just makes the players around him better. And that's what we need right now, especially in a season where we're very clearly not as cavalier going forward as we were last season. We're a lot more conservative. We're a lot more focused on playing the safe pass and maintaining the counter press and holding the shape so that we don't get hit on the counter. Um, and yeah, I, I don't think Enkedia really plays into that at this point in time. Yeah. yeah. And also I want to say that I think Mikhail picks Eddie because of how well he trains. But come mm-hmm. on, man. Like You cannot be on the point, choose someone just because they're banging it in training. Like, apparently, Patrick Vieira was never amazing in training, but once he was on the pitch, he absolutely came to life. So, I don't think you can pick a player just based on how they train or how good their character is because no one's doubting Eddie. You saw in the Amazon documentary the way he was lecturing Lokonga about how he needs to, like, just keep his head down and work. I think that's an admirable quality. But, unfortunately, you also need to have real quality in, on the pitch to win matches. Uh, and I've always said this, that if Arsenal bring in a centre-forward who's going to poach and score 24 goals a season, that's cool because you're at least scoring 24 goals. But will Eddie get you 24 goals? I don't think so. I think he probably gets you 10 to 15 goals and that's sort of his ceiling. So I don't think he's worth the fuss in terms of making Saka and Martinelli, as Chidi said, because if we're to do anything this season, it's to unlock these two. And the best way to do it is Trossard. So... Big ups to him for his performance yesterday. Absolutely. And speaking of Martinelli, I think we do have to talk about the historic cooking that he was on the right <laughs> end of yesterday. Um, 
man, I'm I'm sure Juan uh, is it Juan Lu? Yeah, I'm sure Juan Lu yeah. saw Martinelli in his nightmares last night. But um, yeah, Chitty, what did what did you make of Martinelli's performance yesterday? Do you think it it means anything that he you know terrorized this Sevilla right back, or do you think it's indicative of you know um, him getting his season back on track for all intents and purposes? Yeah, I mean, I, um, like first of all, I think they said that the Juan Lu is uh, been linked to Real Madrid apparently, so I think they probably cut the line now. He's not uh, getting that move, <laughs> but <laughs> but um, yeah, I think I, I think Martinez since he's been back, I think he's been he's actually been quite good to be honest. Like I don't think I think okay, the Newcastle game, no one really played that well going forward, but I think before that, like he's been like pretty. Obviously, he had the goal against Man City, and like he's been pretty dangerous, like the other games. So I don't think he's necessarily was in like a bit of a rut of form. I think Saka was probably maybe more a bit iffy the last couple of games, but I think it was good to see him really go for it in this game. And he's, I think you must have seen the interview that he did where he said um, Arteta had a, like a talk with him and Saka and told him specifically to just take more risks and. Um, just do what you're good at, basically, which is going past players and taking players on. And I think he literally, from the first minute, I think he literally got the ball, just completely gassed past the uh, Juan Lu. And like from that moment, he so- he sort of had that confidence of like, okay, this guy cannot take me. He he knew from the first encounter, he was like, this guy, he's a scrub, he can't take me. And he literally went at him again and again and again, and just it was just like relentless. Like I was like every time. Martinelli's free, Martinelli's free, ping it to him, they ping it to him, and he just go past him again. It was like watching the same clip on repeat, um, which was, it was just quite surreal to watch, to be honest. And like, he was, you, you, you could see the confidence growing, he started doing a few skills yeah. as well. Like, there's a bit he did with, like, with Lamella, where he was, I don't know what he was doing, but it was just like, yeah, getting the, getting the crowd excited. And yeah, I mean, it's just, it is what you, what, what you come to watch, you know, when a player that's just in that element, just going past players and making things happen. And, yeah, the the crossing was a different story. To be fair, I think um, <laughs> that was it was partly on him. It was partly on just the players around who weren't doing enough to make options in the box. I think I think I watched the the compilation of his performance, and I think you, what you do notice is a lot of players even made the same run, or they, didn't, they weren't making the right movements in the box to, to be free for the crosses. And someone mentioned that um, if Odegaard was in the team. You know how he likes to sit in the edge of the box with those cutbacks. He would have been a nice option there um, for Martinelli to pull it back to. So um, we didn't make the best use in that sense. But um, I don't worry about Martinelli's crossing because we've seen him play how many good crosses in before left foot, right foot. He can cross a ball in. It was just one of those days where it just wasn't quite on the mark. So I'm, it's not like a oh he needs to work on it. He's a good he's a good crosser. Like it's it's not it's not it's fine. Um, but yeah, I think the main thing was just to see him and Saka as well. Saka had a few nice good dribbles as well. I think Saka, Saka was really sharp yesterday and probably his best overall game of the season, I think. Um, but like seeing both of them really just go for it and go back to like basically sort of the vibes of last season in terms of the way mm-hmm. they were terrorizing uh, fullbacks. It was just good to see, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And yeah. Um, I think, oh, sorry, Sash, did you, did you want to add? Oh no no! Please go ahead. Please go ahead. Yeah, um, I I think it was, you know, I think those two really kind of um, contributed to the control that we had over the match. Right? It was just wave after wave of attack. You know, giving the ball to Martinelli and having him just run at Juan Lu for the nineteenth time. 
or giving the ball to Saka and, you know, having him combine on the edge of the penalty area, either with Trossard or White making the overlap. Um, and, you know, I think Havertz was also getting involved there as well. And, you know, I think it just created kind of the most dominant in control performance that we've had this season. And obviously, you know, Sevilla weren't doubling up the wings. Um, they weren't really um, incessantly trying to kind of pack the midfield and prevent us from playing in there. But, you know, I think it was a really encouraging performance just to see us sustain waves of attack and to see us um, really just get a firm grip on the match and, and dictate proceedings. So, um, you know, Sash, I just wanted to get your thoughts on whether you think this is something that we can replicate moving forward or if it's more down to just the opposition that we faced on the day. Yeah, I think it's partly down to the opposition because a lot of teams, they would double up on Saka and Martinelli and that didn't uh, happen yesterday. And Martinelli, though, when he's in this sort of mood, like usually he's in this mood against Liverpool. Liverpool at home with Mr. Trent Alexander-Arnold defending. He's always in the mood. Uh, but yesterday he turned it on. Like, And once he gets into this mood, he's just going to take on players. Absolute joy to watch. Um, a bit unlucky, I thought, as Chidi mentioned, maybe on certain occasions the supporting cast could have been positioned a bit better uh, in the box. But nonetheless, like the skill he pulled off at the end of the half, it reminded me of what Berbatov did. I think it was against Blackburn that assists to Ronaldo where he goes on the touchline, just lobs it over the player and does it. And I think Martinelli is a player, he's an instinct player, you know. And sometimes I'm very pissed with Arteta because sometimes Martinelli receives high and wide uh, and just place it back to the left back. And you cannot use Martinelli like a robot because he's not a robot. He is like one of those typical South American players, purely plays on instinct. You should just give him full freedom, play however the hell you want, lose the ball, I don't care. Just play with flat. Um, and again, this again comes back to what Chidi said about getting the best out of Saka and Martinelli. And I think this is how you get the best out of Martinelli. Just let him be, don't restrict him. Obviously, we we will discuss about which midfielder we could potentially sign to help him play better because right now, Rice is still not 100% in that left eight position. He's playing well, but in terms of enabling Martinelli, we might need to have a solution. So, in terms of sustainability, Sham, you asked whether this is something we could replicate. I think we can. I think the addition of Trossard there means that, you know, defenders are going to be sucked into Trossard a bit more because I don't think defenders showed Eddie that sort of respect because he's not so good with his back to goal. Whereas Trossard, he has such a low center of gravity. He can spin away from these defenders. He's good with his left foot, good with his right foot. So he's a tricky customer and he's also going to rotate with Martinelli. So I really like that. And I think against most sides, I think it can bring us a lot of success. Um, and I think we should just continue the way we played against Sevilla, do it against Burnley as well and build... Uh, the momentum. So, very big positive, I thought. Even the way Saka was playing yesterday, like, physically, he looked a bit jaded in recent matches, but yesterday, he looked like the Saka we know and love. So, uh, long may that continue. Yeah, yeah. I I think I think it is really encouraging, because Martinelli also, like you said, mentioned that instruction from Arteta to, you know, be more direct and and, you know, really just kind of take the game to the opposition. And I think playing like that will kind of allow us to dictate matches more 
I think that allows us to get the midfield more into the game because the defense is focused so much on Saka and Martinelli and, you know, involving Trussard as well, um, just gives them another thing to think about. And I think if you have more of a threat in the middle, defenses are forced to pay attention to that and you can't constantly triple up Saka and uh, and Martinelli and then forget about Trussard, who I think is also just as dangerous in the in the middle of the the penalty box as well. So, you know, I think I think we've found something there that can be really really successful for us moving forward. And another thing that we've kind of seen over the last few games that can help us in the future in the near term is Tomiyasu's performance at, at left back in recent games. And it he had to leave a halftime yesterday due to I, I don't think it was an injury necessarily, but he kind of felt something and they just wanted to be precautious. We'll see. Um, you know, there hasn't really been much news on that besides that little bit. But, you know, in terms of Tomiyasu's performance at left back, I think he's really emerged as a genuine starting option there. Sash, you mentioned, you know, the your statement that Jesus and Zinchenko will kind of be upgraded upon or moved on from in the coming year. I think we're already seeing that with yep. Zinchenko, yep. right? So, um, you know, I just want to get your thoughts because we have Burnley coming up in a couple of days. Yep. If Tomiyasu is available, do you start him against Burnley, Burnley or do you start Zinchenko against Burnley? So this is a tricky question. So in a normal scenario, I would say start Zinchenko. I think Zinchenko should start about against like 30% of the side. So I'm talking Sheffield home, Palace home, Burnley home, Everton home. These are games where you will have a lot of the ball and it helps if your left back can also join in and help fist those balls in between the lines. So I think Zinchenko definitely has his utility. I'm not saying he's outright bad. I think you need to use him correctly. Uh, I said this a few weeks ago. There's a reason Zinchenko never started more than 15 games for Guardiola. Like in the big games, Pep would be a little bit more conservative with who he selected uh, at left back. But Zinchenko would also have his use. Like against Villa... On the last day of the Premier League, when City are chasing the game, you bring on Zinchenko because you want control of the game. You want an extra presence in midfield. You want the left-back to be more technical. So he does have his utility. I'm not denying that. But use him in the right matches. But I think what's complicating matters a bit right now for Zinchenko is that if you see how Arsenal set up, on the ball, we have the left-back typically inwards and joins the lone six. In this case, that's Jorginho. The problem is having Zinchenko and Jorginho in that pivot. It's asking for trouble. We saw it against Chelsea as well, where Conor Gallagher just ate them alive. We need to make sure we have a good balance, you know? Like, again, people are saying Jorginho is awful. He can't run. Okay, fine. But he also has a lot of qualities. You saw yesterday the pass he played. In general, he controls the game well. So how can you balance it out? You put someone like Tomiyasu at left-back, so that the team has more physicality uh, and Jorginho is protected. You also have Declan Rice next to him. But the problem is with Zinchenko plus Jorginho, it's a bit too open in midfield. But again, this could be a risk we could take against Burnley at home. Because this Burnley side, I think, I don't, I, I don't really see them as a huge threat. They're more technical than the Burnley sides of old, but they're not as physical. And I think one of Burnley's big strengths before was that physicality. They'd always have that one tall striker like Wood, someone like this. They always have a couple of players who could play in those crosses, like Goodmanson. They also have like that 
one thug sort of player like Barnes who would just, you know, create chaos. So this Burnley side is not like that. So I think we can be like even more braver against them because I don't see how they're really going to threaten us because I don't think they're going to play their way out of our press. I just don't see it. So I think this is the sort of game you could use Zinchenko. But we have to take it in a very calculated manner. Yesterday, I was a bit scared actually when Zinchenko came on uh, to play left back uh, because I thought the game state was not maybe the best for him. But he managed for like 20-odd minutes and then moved into midfield, thankfully, and replaced by Kivior. But I think that's something else we can talk about, actually. Is Kivior a potential option at left back, maybe, instead of uh, Zinchenko or Tomiyasu? So, I think he's a good player. I think he also could be tried out. It's a good game to actually experiment Burnley at home. Like, you can't take any side in the league for granted. But if you can't play Kivior at left back and beat Burnley, then you have bigger problems. So, I think this is a good good game to actually maybe play Kivior and maybe... Or Zinchenko. So I wouldn't play Tommy Asu in a game like this. Yeah, I think the Kivior shout is a really good one because you know that's that's one of my cardinal rules this season. Don't play Jorginho and Zinchenko together. Those two are leaves in the wind. Yeah. Um so you know, yeah, I think I think Kivior is a really good idea there if Tomiyasu can't go, which you know is a possibility at, at this point in time. So um and also I will say, you know, not not to not to dunk on Zinchenko unnecessarily here, but he almost got himself sent off against Sevilla. He got that he got the yellow card, and then he was, you know, seemingly getting on the referee's nerves at one point. Uh, I want to say it was like seventy fifth ish minute. Um, yeah, so you know, again, there's just that that kind of worry that Zinchenko plays with a little bit too much emotion. But um, Chitty, what what are your thoughts? Do you think do you think Tomiyasu if he can play? Is the move there? Do you think um, Sinchenko is the best option? Do you think Kivior is someone should be con- uh, that should be considered? Yeah, I think um, like I don't think we need to risk Tomiyasu at all. To be honest, I think um, of course, like we know his injury problems he's had before, and like I think if he's, I think he should be okay. Like if he's just a precaution, but I don't think we need to really rush to put him back in the team for Saturday. Um, I think. Kirill is someone I feel like we need to play more. And obviously it's hard to play, to like rotate in the defence, especially when our defence is such a big strength of ours and we don't want to rotate unnecessarily. I know we did that before in the season and people weren't too happy when uh, Gabriel got dropped. So I, would, I wouldn't like say we should do that. But I mean, for a game against Burnley at home, potentially he could even start at centre-back, to be honest, because, you know, we don't need... We, we we want to give players as much game time as possible um, yeah. when we can, especially because we're going to get to the stage, like say when we get to African Cup of Nations and, you know, when players like, and, and Asian Cup as well, so Tommy Asu will be off. Um, like we're going to get to this sort of stage where players will go get injured and we want players to be ready to go in that sense. And I feel like what happened last season, in a sense, is a lot of players were sort of, hadn't really played for a few months in a sense. Like when you got to the back to the Europa League and against Sporting, when we started to um, play, wanted to play a few more of our fringe players, but a lot of them hadn't played since pretty much the Cups in like December time. And it was sort of, they got sort of thrown into it and didn't really look that they were ready to play. So we want to sort of avoid that as much as possible this season while still re- maintaining the sort of continuity and everything. But I think a player like Kiwi, I think he's proven to be trustworthy enough and proven to be good enough 
to sort of slot in, whether it's at left back or at centre back, he can slot in and play um, to a good standard. So I think I would probably play him at left back if that was the decision to be made. Um, I think we could we could afford to play Zinchenko, but as you say, yeah, the whole Jorginho at six situation has sort of made it a bit more complicated, especially because Party's been injured, which means that if we had Declan Rice there, then it's not a problem at all. And we saw that before. We've seen the Zinchenko in there with Rice, and it's completely fine. But because Rice is now playing in this eight position, um, this is the situation. To be fair, we could potentially play Rice at six this game yeah. and play a bit more attacking midfielders um, because we could, if we played Rice at six, then we could play Zinchenko at left back and then potentially play. I do want. I do want to see Trossard into the mid at some point, but maybe not now because we haven't got Jesus back. But mm-hmm. I do want to see that again because we saw it in preseason against against Barca. I think he plays in the mid and he like balled out completely. And like we've seen, he can play in those sort of deep positions, but we've not really seen it much this season at all since preseason. So that's something I do want to see. But I think if um, obviously Jesus is out, so I would play Trossard at, at um, striker and then. Yeah, but we could do with having Declan Rice in the, center, in the sixth position and play someone like Vieira or someone like Havertz in the midfield. So, yeah, yeah, that's probably what I would go for. That's what we did against Sheffield as well last week. So, I think. Yeah, we... exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, I um, Yeah, I think, I, think, I think those are really good points, especially. And I, I personally, in terms of the left eight situation, I think it would be interesting to play Rice and Tomiyasu and then kind of have that defensive solidity to use Vieira. I just think mm. I just think you need a ball player there with Martinelli. And I think Vieira is a guy who can who understands Martinelli and can do the overlaps and underlaps for him and like has that great chemistry. I don't know. There's um uh, the le- left left center mid is an is an open position right now. But yeah. speaking of Thomas Party News broke earlier today that he has suffered another injury setback and will be unavailable essentially until January, which means he will be unavailable essentially until midway through February because he goes to the African Cup of Nations in January. And so, you know, Party has barely played this season. He came on for 20 minutes against Manchester City, and that is it essentially. And this is this is a big season, right? We're we're competing for the Champions League, we're competing for the Premier League, and to not have, you know, out the guy that we have earmarked as our starting six, to not have a guy who brings such important qualities to the team, who I think is a big reason why we've had the attacking issues that we'll we'll talk about in a bit. Um, you know, I just want to get your thoughts on on how how do we handle this? Is it is it time to move on from party? Would you um, make a move in January to uh, address the situation, uh, Sash. I'll, I'll start with you first. Kind of, you know, what are what are you just what are your thoughts on the party situation at this point in time? Yeah, so I think honestly, Thomas Party is a player who's been injury prone for ages. I think he's missed over fifty percent of his games so far. And unfortunately, in football, I think he's an amazing player. By the way, world class player, one of the best uh, midfielders in the world. But what I will say about Thomas Party. Uh, is that he's injury prone and not reliable that's the harsh truth whether you like it or not and i think availability is the first thing and then it's your actual ability 
and if you're not available nothing can be built around you so we can never plan with him in the present or the future in terms of okay thomas party is going to be like this guy who's a constant in midfield that's never going to be the case so we have to start planning for life after him uh david onstein reported in the summer that thomas party and the club were trying to figure out a way that he could leave it obviously didn't materialize um and arteta's plan then became to play party rice and odegaard midfield that happened in the community shield but then the first few games arteta went galaxy brain and put party at right back uh, his hamstring could not take that unfortunately <laughs> and he had an injury um and he then was out for a month and a half then comes in plays 13 minutes against man city plays a really nice cameo shows us all why he's such a good midfielder plays a role in the build up uh, to martinelli's winner in the 88th minute i think it was and then again he picks up an injury and now he's expected to miss over two and a half months and has a surgery and i think we have a couple of interesting questions which ties into this debate um actually that we're having and it's well, how can we deal without thomas party obviously now we've spoken about like internal solutions like if the midfield debate as you mentioned that lcm spot is now a gaping hole we don't know it's just anyone goes there at the moment but a couple of things that we have to consider the first thing comes from christy he says big up lads uh, in january what do you think we should prioritize a midfielder or a striker and initially it was reported that we wanted us to sign like ivan tony like that's what was initially reported but then today we seeing reports that no arsenal are not going to go for a striker and in light of thomas party's injury they're actually going to go after a defensive midfielder this also comes from a reliable source in sammy mockbell so you know it seems like arsenal are shifting the position that they want to sign and it seems like that's been decided and the second question then comes if you're going to sign a midfielder which midfielder should we sign to replace thomas party right and there are a lot of opinions on this everyone has a different opinion uh, some fans uh, want us to sign zubi mendy like ex agent 93 he says sell party asap he's not reliable um and to replace him with zubi mendy so there there are a lot of options out there and obviously zubi mendy is one of the names um he's been linked with arsenal in the past uh, reports suggested that arteta wanted to sign zubi mendy earlier this season in january and we were even willing to pay his release clause which i think is like 55 million something like this in that range um but the player didn't want to leave midway through the season obviously he's his boyhood club so he wants to stay there and didn't want to abandon them midway through a season but i wonder if things might change this season there's obviously a lot of whispers around his name um and i wonder if arsenal might go back in for him personally though i would go for frankie de jong next summer like i know his wages are high but chidi was speaking about someone that can you know facilitate martinelli and like unlock him i think someone like frankie de jong baiting the press getting past a couple of players and slipping martinelli in giving him that underlap and overlap option as you mentioned that would be cash money for me and i think arsenal should go for the top target but now that doesn't mean zubi mendy is a bad option he can play as a holding midfielder he can also play uh, as an eight so he's shown a lot of versatility already uh, he's already a leader he's young arteta clearly likes him and one of the things i look at in midfielders is they should play with their head up i really like that um and zubi mendy you know before he receives the ball he's always scanning he's i really like his play style 
um, and I think it would tie in really well. Um, but he would not be my first option. Uh, and Parf says Zubi could imply a flatter double pivot or rise at eight, which I'm not particularly a fan of. Yeah, interesting. I'm quite intrigued to see how this evolves. Also, with the signing of Havertz, Arteta has invested 65 million on him. Uh, and now you're saying you want to sign a striker. Could we play 4-4-2 prime Brexit ball like with Havertz and another striker? I don't know, right? Like it's very hard to say. But from my point of view, I would look to get in Frankie de Jong. But if the club is not confident of securing someone like that in the summer, then definitely I just look to sign who we could sign, who's the best option in Jan. And it seems like Zubi Mendy could be potentially uh, a really good option. Uh, but what do you think, guys? Um, I think, yeah, I, I like Zubi Mendy. Like, I, I like him a lot. Like, um, I've watched a bit of Sociedad this season. I mean, they've been flying in the Champions League. I mean, in the league, they've been a bit inconsistent. But, like, they play good football. And they yeah, very fun team to watch. And I think um, it might be a bit of... A problem of getting him in January because of the fact that I think they qualified for the Champions, uh, the lock, knockout stage yesterday um, or the day before. I can't remember when they played, but I think they've qualified for the champ, the knockout stage. And um, I guess if that's their probably their first, I think it's the first or the second time in their history that they've done it. So it's probably like a big thing for the players that want to play um, knockout football for Sociedad. So it might be a bit hard to pry away these sort of players from uh, from them in January. Um, I think it's definitely worth a go him and Kubo as well, which is another great player in, in um, for Sociedad. I think, yeah, both of those are really good targets. And we've seen, I think we've sent scouts out to them yesterday to watch them play. Yeah. So they clearly are on the radar. And I think just to have quality in midfield, I think we need a proper midfielder, like just a midfielder who can play in midfield. Anyone. <laughs> like, you know, like, I'm, I'm tired of, like, this guy, oh, he can only play as a 10 or he can only play as a 6. Like, just play someone who can play in, like, as an actual, just a midfielder, you know, like those, like the old days where you could just Johan Kabay. You know, exactly, like a, a centre mid. I want a centre mid in the midfield. Like, that's the sort of vibe I'm sort of getting. Who's someone, yes, who can play these hot or complex, like, hybrid roles, whatever, but who can just put him there in the midfield next to Rice and just say, like, okay, just do your thing as a midfielder, not yeah. like, oh, Vieira, he needs to be protected by this guy or this guy. And like, oh, Havertz needs to like, have this, uh, he needs to play off another striker. Like, it's just like, I want players who can just come into the team and just play football. Like, I know it's a very simplistic way of looking at things, but... No, but you're right. I, yeah. I just, I think we, we are lacking an actual, like, an eight or an actual just all-round, all-action midfielder. Yeah. And I think, yeah, that's really what is going to, like, be the difference between what we do this season. And I think in terms of the prioritising question, I think it's a question of whether you think... I think a striker is probably going to push our ceiling higher in terms of if we got a new striker in now, um, it could potentially be the difference between us, like, you know, winning the Premier League or a Champions League or whatnot. But obviously... The midfield is sort of what is sort of holding us back at the moment. And I think when everyone is fit, okay, the midfield is completely fine. But it, this, it seems like it is quite a big hole at the moment. And we are sort of struggling through games because of this sort of lack of midfielder there, which is what of why I think number one priority is a midfielder. 
there is also people talking about a defender coming in as well and like where that should be a priority because of injuries and AFCON and all these sort of things. So that's also a question uh, to answer as well. Coop Miners is a good shout as well. I, I do like yeah. him. Yeah. Man, I think a lot of this could have been solved if Sir Granit Xhaka just decided to stay one more season for one last dance. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the problem with him as well is that, like, it was always clear that he was, like, going to last a long time in football in terms of the way he plays. He was not, like, he's going to be playing top-level football 34, 35 onwards because he never relied on his pace. He always relied on his intelligence and his technique. Yeah. And, like, you just see the way he, he just, he's one of those players who's going to, like, age like a fine wine in the sense. And, like, he's, he's playing his best football of his career right now. Like, you see what the yeah. stuff he's doing for Leverkusen. Like, incredible every week. And it's yeah. like, we only had a taste of that last season. And then that's when he decided to go back. Yes, he had his reasons for leaving, but I just wish we could have sold Parsi instead of Jacker and kept Jacker yeah. instead. We would be yeah. completely fine right now if we had if we had yeah. Jacker. Shaka um, and Rice, like two proper leaders in midfield, man. That would have been like so epic, but it is what it is. Yeah. 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 I, I do think another shout um for a midfielder in January would be Yusuf Fofana from Monaco. You know, I think um, I, I don't know that much about him, but I know he's, you know, a very athletic physical player, but also has kind of that nice blend of technical quality. I hear he's doing very well at Monaco. He's broken into the French national team, 24 years old. So, you know, pretty solid age has has a good amount of experience, but still, you know, room to grow, still pre-prime. And his contract expires in 18 months, which I think really knocks down the price a fair amount there. So, I think he's an interesting player to look at if you're if you're really trying to just uh, kind of replace what party brings to the team, right? If you think for for the time being that's the fix that needs to be made, so um, I think I think that is an interesting option. And then outside of that, I've heard people talking about us signing a striker in January. I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think it should happen. Um, I think you got to address the midfield, and I think you also have to look at the defense. It, at, at right back, you know, maybe we should do something there. You know, I, I do get worried about Ben White's minutes, and Sashu and I talked about this on a recent pod. But I do also concede the fact that in January, at this point in time, we're playing only two games. And, you know, we get about three weeks of rest between our last game in December and our first game in January. So maybe that's not the biggest concern. Oh, really? I do think... I maybe idea. i i mean if 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 we if we yeah well because don't uh, isn't our last game well don't we have a game on december 28th and then our next game after that is like january 20th oh wow okay that's i'm pretty sure that's the case there is, there is a break i remember and because we're out of the carabao cup or league efl cup as well i think that also means we don't have a game as well um yeah, nice. yeah so i think it's, it's actually not as bad as it's been made out to be in terms of that sort of situation. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I, I don't think right back is the biggest concern. Um, it still is a concern, but I do think a right center back is very important because as things stand, um, you know, if something happens to Saliba, we're still going to struggle, you know, mightily. So, you know, there's people talking about Diomond um, over, over in Portugal 
uh, or Diamande, sorry. And isn't he France now, if I'm not wrong, playing for Leon now, isn't he? Is he? No, I think he's at Sporting, I, I think. Yeah, Where's I thought he was still a Sporting. I think he's at Sporting, yeah. Yeah, he is. He is. But I think, yeah, yeah the Diamande is a, uh, an interesting one because obviously he's still quite young and it's like, yeah. obviously it's, it's a great, he's a great, great talent. And, but it's like, can we even afford to like develop him really at this point? Because I think yeah. he's not, he's not the finished article in the sense. He's going to cost a lot of money and he's the sort of a player that you sort of have to give, you know, give him a season, give yeah. him minutes and keep on like playing him in sense through the sort of rough patches. And, would you bring a player like that in to be a backup to Saliba is a question. I, I don't think that's the best use of resources yeah. in a sense, yeah. um, especially because Gabriel and Saliba are just such a, such a good partnership. I just don't think anyone can break that up, like personally. I think the balance is so good there that I don't think I want to sign a centre-back looking, looking at them being like, you're going to break that partnership up. Of course, every centre-back comes in that should want to break the partnership up, but I don't think we should be like, if you spend 80 million on a, on a centre back, they're coming to start, obviously. Um, so if you're, if you're spending in that sort of range, then yeah, you're sort of saying a message of this guy is going to be the starting centre back soon. So I don't think we should be going in that sort of direction. Um, but yeah, someone maybe a bit more experienced, not like old, but like a bit more experienced. Even like the Kiwi signings, that sort of signing is a good exactly. one to, yeah, was yeah, to go for. Um, bit more of a hidden gem sort of player, but still a very yeah. good player and it's proven to be useful. Yeah. yeah. But I think I think definitely, you know, base of midfield and then either either right sided center back or right back. I think those two positions need to be addressed in January because I think those are where the biggest risks are for us right now. So yeah. Yeah. I think Charlie Patino is a good shout as well for next season. We should not sleep on him. He's balling in the championship and, you know, he actually, I think he, in terms of profile, Chidi, like he would be mm-hmm. really good. The only question obviously is the physicality, whether he can come into the pace of the Premier League and impose himself because he's never really played in the Premier League. But in terms of the talent and the attributes, he's there. So let's see what yeah. happens. He is almost like, you know, the, the young you're talking about. He does seeing like that sort of, in that sort of mode of player, of course. The quality obviously is a big difference, but you know he could grow into that sort of player potentially. I can't say I've watched any of his games, but I've seen a few comps on the timeline, and he he is doing well there. And like I think definitely a lot better than his last loan spell. And you see yeah. like the improvement already in terms of like just having more first team football, getting adapted to the physicality, and getting more used to it. And he's still only is he nineteen still? I think or yeah, like nineteen twenty, if I'm not 20, mistaken, something like that. So. Like, very, very young, even though it seems he's been around, like, quite a while. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, like, I think definitely he could have a future here. But I didn't mention the De Jong shout. But, like, yeah, Rice De Jong Odegaard would be, like, the best midfielder in Europe, pretty much. So, <laughs> I, 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 would, I would do crazy things for, to see that happen. But I do not know where shot. we'd find the money for it. It would be amazing, but... It'd be a long yeah. shot, but... Oh, my God. Stanley Kroenke has a plan for us, bro. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> if, it's not, if it's not Mbappe, it's got to be De Jong. That's what I'm saying, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, with uh, so we'll we'll close out with this, right? Um, we, we've just been talking about what we need to do in the midfield. Um, but we we need to acknowledge the fact that we do have issues in attack as well. And um, 
you know, we we're talking about the Newcastle game, but also um, it, it just it, it hasn't felt like the attack has clicked yet. Right. And we've talked about this a little bit earlier in the pod. But, you know, just before we put a bow on this and say goodbye, um, you know, Chitty, what are what are your thoughts on how the attack has performed this season? Are you concerned or, you know, is the the difficult schedule we started out with kind of a reason to hold off on the worry for now? Um, yeah, like I think there's a few different reasons why it hasn't performed. I think certain players haven't been up to the standards they were last season. I mean, particularly like some of the like creator players, like the Zinchenko hasn't really had the impact that he had last season. I think people might have sussed out the whole how to combat his sort of inverting and sort of they're sort of like gambling and leaving players to sort of be in his spot. So when we do get counted on, it is having a bigger effect in terms of uh, teams being able to get at us. Um, and yeah, I think they sort of packing them field a bit more and not letting in players balls through. So he hasn't really had the impact. Obviously, Odegaard, I think, I'm not really sure what Arteta has been doing with him in terms of his role and how he's playing, but it's just not how Odegaard should be playing. Um, like, it's, it's like Odegaard should be our second phase sort of controller who's a midfield player. Like he, Odegaard is a midfielder, like a proper midfielder. And I feel like he's been too much involved in just in the final third rather than being in the middle third, like actually con- connecting, playing, just doing the stuff he does best. And I think it's a, it, it seems to be a tactical thing because that's what I don't think he wants to play like that. But it just seems like that's what um, Arteta is telling him to do. And I don't think it's the best way to use him. So I think that's been a big problem in terms of creativity. And yeah, I think the the wingers have like, I think Saka's had a, a good season, I think. like I think people are being a bit overboard in terms of, oh, he's been average, he's been average. Like, I mean, okay, yes, he's not had a loads of, he's not been sparkling every game, but I think obviously his output's been fantastic this season. Like almost pretty much a goal or assist every game. And I think he has been like dangerous most games. He has been probing and everything. Um, it just not, isn't there compared to last season. So you can't really compare in that sense. Um, have I disconnected? Shit. No, you're still here. Okay. We can Chitty, see. can you hear us? Yeah. Mm. It's the PGMOL again, hacking <laughs> Wi-Fi. <laughs> okay, wait. Uh, I... I can't see. Oh, you can? What the fuck? We can hear you. What at least we did. Okay, well, while we're waiting for Chitty to reconnect Sash, you know, what are what are your concerns with, with the attack? And, you know, do you think there's anything that mitigates those concerns from the start of the season? And, um, yeah, just, I mean, what are your thoughts on what we need to do to change things up moving forward? Look, I think, honestly, the season has been fine so far. We've not attacked well, but at least we know that we haven't attacked well and still we're only three points behind Man City, right? So... I think 
now's the time for change, right? Trossard has come in, played incredibly well um, at false nine. Um, and that comes Chidi. Finally, the PGML gave his Wi-Fi back. Um, <laughs> Trossard was absolutely cooking for us. Uh, against Sevilla, and I just want that to continue. The same blueprint that we had and not change too much because I think the attack can resolve itself. You need to have Jorginho, Rice, Odegaard. I think that's fine. And have Trossard, Martinelli, Saka. Just persist a bit with this. And I think we'll be fine. Just don't play Eddie up front like against a lot of sides because the, the dynamics are not the same. Use Trossard or Havertz up front and we will be good. So... That's my only thing that I have to say. I still think, yeah, the longer-term solution, get me a good striker, get me a good midfielder. But for now, let's continue with what we did against Sevilla and see uh, where it takes us. And I think, as you mentioned, we had a favourable run coming up now. So hopefully this is a chance for the attack to really stamp its authority and show that uh, they're worth what they're worth. Yeah, I think... um... I uh, I think Sevilla was also encouraging because it does give us that blueprint in terms of how we can be more effective going forward. I think Havertz at right center mid really does improve things for us a little bit. Um, I mean, I, that's 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 my personal opinion, at, at least. I think he just the way that we're set up, I just think he's more effective there than 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 Odegaard is sometimes. I think Havertz um, also looks more like that sent that second striker that we signed him to be. Um, so I, I would be interested to see us move Odegaard into that left center mid position, play Havertz at right center mid rice at six. Um, but we'll see, but yeah, I think we're doing a better job with Trossard of bringing Saka and Martinelli into the game. And I, you know, I do think it is important to remember that we played Newcastle, we played city, we played Chelsea, who I think have been solid defensively, although they certainly didn't certainly didn't look that way against Spurs. And in general, teams are really stacking the box against us and packing the midfield and forcing us out wide and generally just kind of refusing to play us uh, mm-hmm. in, in matches, which which makes things um, more difficult. So I think that drop-off and attack was always coming, especially when, when Party's injured, when Odegaard's injured, when Jesus is injured, when perhaps a a solution to our central problems in in Smith Row, yeah, is injured as well. It, yeah, it's the number of injuries that we've racked up this season is annoying. But you know, I think the signs are there that we sun we haven't just suddenly forgotten how to attack. I do think long term we do need to sign that that killer of a center forward who who doesn't need four chances to to get a goal. You just need to give him you know one chance, maybe a half chance, and he'll put it in the back of the net. But um, yeah. Chitty, did you wanna did you wanna finish your thoughts on on the attack? I can't remember what I was saying, but uh, I think <laughs> yeah, I think um, we basically covered it in terms of just the roles and like what you said about Havertz right center mid. I think um, he's definitely more comfortable there, which is a problem because if we've signed him, I mean we still don't know why he signed, he signed him to be honest, but we presume he's we signed him to play in Jacker's position and that's where he started out in the season and obviously that's not worked out at all he's not comfortable there at all and it seems that at least the angles on the right hand side he seems to be at least be able to come to the ball and turn on the ball and link players a bit better and everything and yes I think if we do want to get the best out of him in a midfield sense yes we'd have to play him 
on the right, which would mean Odegaard going to left centre mid, which at least in terms of the way we've been using the centre mids, it seems like the one on the left has been a bit deeper than the one on the right anyway. So it would make sense to actually put switch them around and have Odegaard drop in more as like um closer to the six and play more as a um more as a, like a second phase sort of midfielder. So it is definitely worth a try. And I think it's something that we should try and see how he works with Martinelli in that sense. Um, because I think, yeah, like Saka, I think he can always can do whatever, whoever he plays with, he can always do his thing, I think. But I think, especially with the way Martinelli sometimes needs a bit more space to exploit and balls to run on to and everything, I think it would help if we had someone who could actually give him a through ball for once, you know, like just give him the ball in those sort of positions. And it would be nice to see Martinelli ball playing midfield, like, like Odegaard next to him, see how it works. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think there are a few tweaks we can do with our team, but I think um, overall, um, yeah, Arteta has to use our players that we have right now better um, going mm-hmm. into the next couple of months. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to say one thing because yesterday I saw some Harvard slander from Chidi yesterday. Um, I just wanted to ask you, like, where do you see his best position? Do you think you mentioned that he's a bit more better on the right, but do you think that maybe Fabio Vieira or Smithro should play that? Like, where do you see Kai Harvard fitting in, like, in terms of his best position? Like, what is it? The, the, the... The the thing is with Havertz is that like you can see why he's playing over the likes of Vieira and Smith Rowe because he is just more physical in terms of like it doesn't seem the midfield is as lightweight when he's playing in that position and you saw it against Newcastle like the way he was putting his body around there and like winning duels and like just like actually being able to stand up to the likes of Bruno Gimmarash and those sort of players in midfield and you wouldn't want to play Vieira in that sort of game like. I think he, he very even came on and had a stinker. I think when he came on, like um, like he just didn't really do much. Um, so like if you saw it was that sort of game where Havertz had to sort of play. Um, and if it's yeah, if it's going to be midfield, it has to be on the right. Um, I still do want to see him have more of a role up front, especially against like the better teams. Um, I think especially with Jesus out, um, I would rather have Havertz in the centre forward position and then. Um, like have the team built like that because I think he does provide something a bit different, especially relieving pressure with his with his height, physicality, winning balls, and he has got a good touch. To be honest, like that's one of his probably better attributes. Oh. Is yes, I, I'm being positive. He's got a good touch. So uh... <laughs> I just wanted to hear him say something nice about Kai you know, you know, it's lucky. He's lucky we won yesterday, so I don't have to slander him today. So um, yeah, no. uh, inches inches away from a Galaza, though. I will give him that. It was very close. I was like, okay, if he 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 will get that goal soon. I just don't think that goal is going to do anything in terms of <laughs> like you, you know, in terms of like people were like, oh, when he gets his first goal, he's going to start scoring. I just don't think he will. I just think he will score, and then he just won't score again for a long time. And then he'll score again. And then, like, it just, I just don't see him as a sort of like, oh, he's finally broken a duck. He's going to go on a run of scoring. I just don't think he's ever going to be that player, personally. I, I, I don't think he'll ever, like, I don't think he'll ever, like, break the dam if he scores. I just think yeah. if he, if he scores and, like, just has, like, a few games where maybe he gets a goal 
Maybe he gets an assist, right? I think just the confidence will will be there and we'll see it more often. Like we won't have to wait a month and a half for him to have a goal contribution. That's that's what I'm hoping for. But I don't think we're ever yeah. going to go on a run where he has like, you know, four goals and three assists in six games or something. We're just, I don't think we're going to see that. Yeah. Um, uh, I, the, the last comment was very interesting there, the Erdegaard one, because uh, uh, I'm sure you've seen no, was it no new things, uh, tweets about Erdegaard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, he actually recently unblocked me, which is a great moment, so I can actually see his tweets again. But uh, <laughs> um, um, yeah, Erdegaard slander. I think um, like it has been slightly deserved, to be honest. Some of his, his performances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, was it the what was the worst one? Is it the Chelsea game where he just absolutely stunk up the gaff? I think it was a Chelsea game. Yeah, Chelsea and Spurs, the, the not London derbies, yeah. Not the London derbies, basically. Yeah. Yeah, he's um I don't know. He just he hasn't really been taking control of the games the way that he should be, especially with the armband. Um, and maybe that's down to the fact that he's playing a slightly different role with rights at six and party's not there and all that. But I still think at the end of the day, you have to adapt a little bit. Um, right. it, 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 it feels a lot of the time, like he's just a passenger. Yeah, no, I actually agree with no new thing. I think he has a good point here. I think Odegaard, maybe as you mentioned, shitty, like he maybe plays LCM plays as a facilitator, but sometimes in the final third, especially this season, like he's not shown me the efficiency that someone like De Bruyne would show in that final third situation, playing the pass or taking the shot. You could also argue that it's partly due to the midfield not supplying him like they were last season. But in general, I agree that he has to be a lot more um, efficient for sure. Mm. I think he needs to make uh, better choices as well, to be honest, because I think you've seen sometimes he'll just. He, he needs to find a balance between shooting and passing as well. Like, yeah. you've seen some yeah. of the shots he's taken this season, and it's like, we know you can score goals. Like, you've made you've made your point. Like, you don't need to shoot from, like, yeah. 35 yards on the angle. Like, we, yeah. that's not the best, most efficient way of, of us playing. And you can see sometimes, yeah. I think there was, there was a game where, I can't remember, I think, I don't remember what game it was, but Martinelli got visibly frustrated when, I think, Erdogan had a shot from, miles out and it just got blocked or whatever and Martinelli was free on the left hand side so I think yeah. <laughs> that is really like sort of affecting us as well in terms of our fluid- fluidity so yeah. when he does come back in hopefully he has sort of sorted that out and he'll get back to what he was doing last season Whoever told Odegaard to shoot more he's taken it extremely literally and he's only shooting at the moment so yeah, yeah. a bit of variation would be good Yeah, yeah for sure all right. Well, I think um, that is a great place to leave it for this week. Uh, we've gone for a little over, little over 90 minutes at this point. But yeah, it's been you know great to chat about the Newcastle game and vent a little bit. Uh, haven't really gotten a chance to do that. So that was that was a lot of fun. It was um, also great to you know chat about the Sevilla game and kind of reflect on a really good performance. And yeah, um, you know, it was, it, was, it was great being here with you guys. So, um, you know, of course, Chitty. Thank you so much for being here. A joy as always. And um, for those of you who don't follow him, you should on Twitter slash X at Chitty AFC. Um, Sash, of course, you can follow at LT Arsenal. You can follow me at Shamsdale. And if you're watching this on YouTube, please uh, you know, like the video, comment, subscribe. 
really helps out. We really appreciate it. If you're watch, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, um, if you give us a five star review and and subscribe and all that, that'd be great as well. And you can follow the pod on Twitter at This Week Arsenal. So um, again, thanks for being here with us. Thanks for listening, and we will hopefully talk to you after we absolutely demolish Burnley at home on Saturday. Until then, take care, stay safe, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Maybe we'll have a good surprise for you.